This is Focal Point, the podcast where we discuss the artists, themes, and processes that define and sometimes disrupt the world of contemporary photography. I'm Karen Irvine, Chief Curator and Deputy Director, here with special guests Lisa Linvey and Natalie Crick. Lisa and Natalie are both artists included in our permanent collection who work with their family members to create photographs that push against some of the mythology of the family and reveal some rather fraught aspects of intimacy. In Lisa's case, she's exploring her family's existence in the wake of her mother's mental illness. Although we never see her mother, the disheveled appearances of her father, sister, and two brothers is mirrored in the unkempt and chaotic appearance of their home. In Natalie's case, she explores sexuality, aging, and womanhood, using her mother, grandparents, sister, and herself as models, mirroring poses and facial expressions that are seen in fashion magazines and advertisements, while at the same time revealing all of her models' imperfections. Today, we are discussing a work that they've each chosen from the MOCP's permanent collection of over 15,000 objects, as well as their own work and practice. We're standing in the vault of the Museum of Contemporary Photography. It's a tightly packed space with high ceilings and tall shelving containing hundreds of black print boxes containing thousands of photographs as well as movable screens that have dozens of large-scale framed photographs hung on them in all different shapes and sizes. I'm Lisa Linvey, and I am going to be talking today about the artwork of Kathy Kowalski. They have actually pulled out two photographs from the vault for me from her series, Get Me Some Pills. Um, so the first photograph that I'm going to explain is a uh, vertical image that is a silver gelatin black and white print. At the bottom of the two photographs, there's a sentence that reads, she was angry at me for treating her like a child. And then the images themselves, uh, the top image is of a elderly woman's torso, her head's cropped out of the image. And so really the focus is on her breast. Um, because of the shallow depth of field, her spider veins become really delicate, beautiful, curvy lines on her body. Uh, and then the image underneath her is a close-up of her knee. Uh, the knee is actually out of focus and the focus sits on her hands which really shows you the veins um, and all of their detail. And then scattered on the floor is a tissue, as well as if you look really closely towards the bottom of the image on her leg, you can see that there is a tube going into what looks like a bag that is either for medicine or something that's going into her at that point. I'm going to talk about the second image, uh, which is a horizontal, also black and white. The sentence below it reads, I wake to your screams you can see her pants are fastened with a safety pin. It looks as though maybe she's lost a lot of weight. Um, her breast sits on top of her stomach uh, and you can see all the creases in it. And then in the background, there's a form that looks like the bottom of a coat rack um, that so beautifully mimics the shape of her body. And then to the right of that image is a close-up of the woman lying down on the ground. Um, her knees are in the foreground. Her stockings are pulled down slightly over her knees. And you can start to see the slight wrinkles of the stocking, which mimic the wrinkles in her leg. Um, in this image, it's really hard to tell if she had fallen or is laying on the ground. And it makes you kind of wonder how she got there. I'm Natalie Crick, and I chose a group of 20 Polaroids by Andy Warhol. They don't really have a title, but they are identified as unidentified woman, short brown hair, cropped top. There's 20 of these Polaroids. The pictures are of the same woman and um, a variety of different, very similar poses. I chose these pictures because at first they look 
like flash photographs and they are flash photographs um the light is really harsh on her skin but then as you look closer at many of them you can see this little area on her chest where her natural skin color shows through then i began to realize that this woman is actually um, she had been painted white um, for the photo shoot this woman is ambiguous in many ways um, mostly because um, you know, a lot of Andy Warhol photographs are of um, celebrities, and this is this unidentified woman. It's really hard to tell how old she is because of the white makeup and the flash photography. Um, she could be anywhere from 35 to even perhaps 55. She's smiling in most of the pictures, and um, the smiles kind of vary from something that seems very genuine to something that's, I don't know, a little bit awkward, a little bit of a grimace. Thanks for being here. I've known you both for a while. Lisa, you graduated in 2009 from Columbia College's MFA photography program, and Natalie in 2012. It's wonderful to have some of your work in the collection and to have watched you both kind of develop your careers as artists. Um, I'd like to have you both tell us why you chose the images you chose. Mm -hmm. And Lisa, maybe we can start with you. Um, I also know that you had a personal connection to Kathy Kowalski, the artist that you chose. So um, in addition to talking about why you chose those images um, to discuss this morning, we'd also love to hear about your relationship with Kathy. Yeah, thank you. So I chose the work of Kathy Kowalski, who is a woman that I have deeply admired um, and really who I think because of her, I am the photographer that I am today. Um, and so Kathy Kowalski was my undergrad professor. And in a lot of ways, she taught me everything that I know about photography and also really kind of shaped who I am as an artist. Um, and so her work um, she spent many years really invested in looking at her community um, and as a woman really thinking about what it means to be a woman through looking at the lives of other women. And so for most of her life, she was a strict documentary photographer, um, which is where I think I learned everything about my formalist um, self, but also she had such a deep, beautiful connection with her subjects, which is what I most admired about her work. And I think through her, I learned that by digging inward, you could really talk about kind of larger issues that were happening. And also I think like really like dug deep into that idea that the personal is indeed political. And so I just admired her vulnerability with her subjects, the fact that she would expose things about her own life and her mother's life that were things that I think we often look away from and she was never afraid of that. And so I think a lot of that really shaped who I am today um, and gave me the courage to really, you know, think about how I exist in the world and how that relates to other people's existence. Mm -hmm. And the photographs depict her mother, correct? Yes. Who was very ill at the time and at the end of her lifetime? Yeah, so for, she's worked on several different projects, but the images that I selected from the collection are of her elderly mother um, who was suffering from dementia. And also I think oftentimes when we think about those kinds of photographs or we look at images of people who are aging and growing old, 
to really talk about kind of the mental state that her mother was in, um, she included text. And so, you know, the pictures are these kind of formal studies of the body, which is also a body that I think as a woman we are ashamed of and don't often look at. Her mother, you know, looks like she's probably in her 70s, 80s, is naked in the photographs. Um, and so there's just that like sense of vulnerability to the body in itself, but also the fact that like, it's hard to picture a mental state. And so how do you start to dissect that? Um, and I think that's really where the text comes in. And so Kathy's interested in documenting the body as it is, but to really start to think about how does the body tell a story um, and how can language start to add to that conversation? It, your work is similar in that it attempts to describe somebody's mental state, but of course you don't put that person into the photographs. Mm -hmm. But I would say what you have in common with Kowalski's work is just that kind of raw, exposed vulnerability that you both um, include mm -hmm. about your own personal lives. So that seems to be a great source of inf uh, inspiration for you. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I think in in undergrad, I did the thing that you do when you enter photo school and I I photographed all the decay and like, you know, black and white photography has this amazing ability to make things that are, you know, not so beautiful, be really beautiful. Um, and so I think once I had her as a teacher and just saw the way that she photographed people, that's like where I fell in love with the idea of photographing people. And, you know, at one point I started to photograph my grandparents and wanted to really like mimic that idea. And then I stepped away from that for a little bit. Kathy actually was diagnosed with cancer while I was in school. And so that was a really hard point, I think, for me and my peers who admired her so deeply. And so as she transitioned out of the school to take care of herself, we had other teachers coming in. And so that's where I started to play around with the four by five camera. And that was the time of like Philip Lorca de Corsia and Jeff Wall and Gregory Crudson. And this element of artifice really came into picture making. And so I feel like I wanted to hold on to my to my inner Kathy Kowalski and mix those two ways of picture making. And also just like, I think it gave me a lot of strength to realize that like this thing was happening in my life that I didn't quite know how to deal with. And I was really able to use photography as a tool to try to make sense of that. And then through doing that, I was able to connect with other people on this kind of deeper level. Because I think the, the things that she's looking at dealing with mental health and the things that I'm interested in are things that are really, really prevalent um, that we as a culture just don't want to look at or talk about. Um, and so it was really important for me to start to think about ways to talk about these things in a larger scope. Awesome. Natalie, let's hear from you about your choice of the Warhols and why you chose those and how they relate to your practice. Well, I'm really interested. I've always been really attracted to Warhol's Polaroids um, and his films. Um, and I think that they weren't really displayed during his lifetime. They were The Polaroids are mostly sketches for his paintings. Uh, the reason why I chose the collection of images that I did because the woman in the pictures is unidentified, and you know most of his Polaroids are of celebrities, and it's very, I guess, mysterious. I I like to look at photographs where I don't really know the backstory, and I can, you know, spend some time, kind of guessing what the situation was. Um, I guess whenever I'm looking at portraiture, I'm always kind of thinking about this dynamic that Roland Barthes talks about in Camera Lucida, which is um, 
kind of what I like to refer to as a love triangle between <laughs> um, the photographer and the subject and then the audience. So in this case, the photographer is Andy Warhol photographing this woman who, as I said before, you can't even really tell what her age is. We don't know who she is. Here she is like wearing this tube top painted white. It's just a very kind of strange scene, um, not knowing the backstory. And then the audience is me. (laughs) Um, So what I've kind of concluded is she was probably an art collector, so a very wealthy woman, you know, commissioning Warhol to um, make a silkscreen painting of herself. (laughs) Um, But he... Um, I guess he would paint his models white in order to, um, you know, you couldn't tell in the silkscreen paintings that the people were painted white. You could only tell in these Polaroid pictures. And, you know, he did that because he's, of course, really interested in the artifice of, or not the artifice, the aura of glamour. So, of course, the, like, white paint would um, remove any imperfections. Warhol was really interested in the cult of celebrity and it's really interesting to look at these pictures of this unidentified woman um, kind of in the context of most of his other Polaroids who are of famous people so it's impossible for me to look at these and not think oh I see these pictures of this woman as she's like longing to be famous like longing to have like her 15 minutes of fame um Also, when we were looking at the pictures earlier, there's a lot of interesting things that are happening um, when you see the group of photographs together. I guess in my own practice, I'm always thinking about like, you know, photography has this like endless bag of tricks. And, you know, as a photographer, you really have, you make so many decisions on the way that you can really manipulate the viewer to be totally honest. (laughs) And one of those decisions is editing. And so when you have like this broader scope of like 20 photographs, and when he would go into these sessions, he was taking like up to 200 pictures of the same person. Um, But what can be revealed through multiple images, I think is really interesting. Mm -hmm. And then um, in these pictures, you can really see like the flaws, like when you can see this little like peep on her chest where you can see her like her real flesh versus like the painted flesh. I just, there's, that's one thing that always gets me in photographs are these like little details that seem to, I don't know, reveal so much about the image making process. Yeah, and your work is a lot about the aura of glamour. And in a way, (laughs) you might say that your pictures who again depict your family members kind of in electric colors and Um, interesting poses where you can't always see kind of the full body or the full relationship between two bodies. But that also really exposed some of the details of aging, Mm -hmm. wrinkles or lipstick that's kind of sloppily applied. Um, So in a way, what I think your work has in common with the Warhol Polaroids is that it's almost like a perverse glamour shot, if Mm -hmm. you will. I love that. (laughs) It's so much more interesting than like flawlessness. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. And actually, I wanted to talk about how I learned about posing. Lisa, when I was in grad school, um, Lisa had just graduated. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at that point, I was just kind of having people pose for the camera themselves. I wasn't really directing them. Mm -hmm. And Lisa 
totally taught me the trick of like going through <laughs> fashion magazines and picking out poses and having your subject perform those poses. Mm -hmm. And it was such a huge influence. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. That's cool. That's a great story. <laughs> awesome. Um, I was an anonymous woman once. <laughs> Exactly. And you were both talking in the vault about having had glamour shots made at the mall oh, when yes. you were young. That was kind of an amusing story. <laughs> yeah, I think it's like, I, you know, one of the things that's so appealing about the Andy Warhol pieces, but even like thinking about Natalie's work and my own and where we overlap is, you know, like everything we understand about ourselves is like mediated through culture and magazines and like beauty ideals and so just thinking back of like these like fake photographs that you often get taken of yourself um and you know like when I was in fifth or sixth grade I got glamour shots and Natalie was I think I was just going into seventh grade when I got yeah. mine so we a bit older <laughs> we go to the mall in our normal clothes and then go to this boutique that dolls you all up and does your hair all crazy and then you get to be this different persona um which is actually like really weird to be like a seventh grade girl feeling like she needs to go to the mall and look like marilyn monroe or um you know just like these like really sexualized ideals of what being feminine is but also there's such a disconnect there too because it's something that's seen mm -hmm. as sexual mm -hmm. but it's I don't know when you're also when you're a kid or even when you're an adult and you're wearing lipstick or whatever it's not necessarily sexual no it's, not at all. it's a a facade yeah which is why it can be fun mm -hmm. it can be fun <laughs> and, and it can be sexual and like but... wearing a feather boa every now and then is great <laughs> <laughs> no, but i think it's so interesting that idea the pressure on women if you mm -hmm. will kind of does feed into both of your works but mm -hmm. in really different ways i mean natalie's talking about the kind of the pressure to be glamorous mm -hmm. and uh, attractive, but even in your work, Lisa, there's also the pressure on women to, let's say, raise the ideal family yeah. and be this, you know, perfect homemaker. Mm -hmm. And so you're both kind of coming at feminine identity, I think, from two different poles, actually, which mm -hmm. really complement each other nicely. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I was raised by a male and I have, you know, two younger brothers and, um, you know, my mother has always dealt with mental health issues. Um, and I think uh, like really just starting to think about too, like, you know, women's issues are also men's issues. And like, I think oftentimes we kind of forget the things that men are doing and going through too. So for me, it was a lot about taking the men in my life and starting to pose them mm -hmm. based on fashion magazines and art history in these, these things that are like typically female in nature. Um, and so even starting to like change that conversation and think about that or um, just like the absurdity of like gendering bodies in ways based on what they wear or how they look. Um, so for me, it started to be a lot more too just about like gender roles and how those exist within my home and also exist outside of just like, you know, we always talk about like the things that are female or look at the female body, but also like how those things can follow male bodies too. Yeah, I can't help but think about the photographs of your dad um, and sometimes his belly almost seems like a like a very womanly mm -hmm. um, like pregnant body mm -hmm. and how at this time he actually I mean he became this caretaker mm -hmm. um, the mother figure really for your family and how you can depict that you know through pose and through the body 
Well, and I think the other thing that's like really thinking about the overlap in our work too is um, the fact that like both of our families have kind of allowed us to to step into mm-hmm. these spaces and be really like vulnerable and. Um, you know, we do these really crazy things to them sometimes, or at least like, you know, like sometimes I put my brother in a pose and he's like, what are you doing to me? Um, and I think there's like that performative nature and that collaborative spirit that um, that is one of the things I've like always admired about your work. Um, and also like the, the fact that they're okay with like not being so beautiful or what we like stereotypically think of as beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's scary to be that vulnerable in a picture. Definitely. No, that's great. Um, yeah, that idea of the personal becoming political. Mm-hmm. Are there other instances in both of your projects that, or what? It, what is your kind of ultimate agenda? Would you say <laughs> with the work? Is it is it possible to summarize that in a few sentences? Well, I I feel like I I can only make work about my experience, mm-hmm. and you know I think I'm thinking about gender in a way that I think a lot of people are questioning gender right now. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, I do think that there is definitely something political about that. Um, and that's something I've always wanted to question is like this performance um, and how photography contributes to that too. Mm-hmm. You know, really how we learn gendered ways of presenting ourselves through our family, um, but also through images. Yeah, I think, you know, I, when I started this project a long time ago, I think there there was a little hesitation um, because I think there is a kind of a cultural fear of talking about mental health. And for me, like my whole life, you know, you're told like, don't do this, don't do that. Uh, don't talk about these things. These aren't, these aren't things that we talk about. Um, so for me, I think, there is a rise in just like mental illness um, and the kind of working with young people in my everyday life. I'm seeing that as like a really, really important factor that we often just like negate and don't want to talk about. So for me, it's been really, really rewarding to talk about mental health and to show it in a way that's not what we're used to seeing. It's not like the thing that we see on TV where people are, you know, wrapped in coats and put in rooms. And so to talk about the fact that like everyday people deal with mental health issues and that those have lasting effects on the people around them and the spaces that they live in. Um, And also that, you know, like you can be beautiful and happy and still also be sad and have these deeper things that exist too. So Natalie, you were talking earlier about what's revealed through multiple images, and both of you have been working for a really long time on your projects and your themes. Can you talk a little bit about what's revealed um, due to the long-term nature of the investigation? And I was thinking earlier specifically about aging. You know, Mm -hmm. in Lisa's case, we watch your siblings and your father age in front Mm -hmm. of the camera. And of course, Natalie's work has a lot to do about the aging body and so forth. I kind of like using multiple images to confuse the viewer because in my case, um, my my work really isn't about my family, even though I use them. And I guess in a sense it is about them a little bit, but mm-hmm. you know, it's so performative um, and directed by me. But um, I mean, I definitely like the fact that you can see a change in appearance in my sister and my mom. but. Um, 
I really was trying to, like over the years that I was making that work, I was trying to confuse my mom's identity. I would, I wanted the viewer to see all of these pictures um, of the same woman, but think that perhaps it was different women. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I started to use myself and my sister as well. And it's interesting because a lot of people will look at the pictures and they don't know who is who. Um, and I think that's, you know, photography is so powerful because of the editing process. And um, even with the pictures that the Warhol pictures that we were looking at earlier, um, we were talking about how there was so much fluidity in the way that this woman looked because, um, you know, just because of her, of her pose, just like these really slight changes in pose, you know, she did look like masculine in some and feminine in others. And, you know, once you are editing down a photo shoot, you really lose that. Um, so I guess I'm, I'm thinking about uh, a, the long-term pro- project and um, multiple pictures to really confuse the viewer. Yeah, and I, um, you know, when I started this project, I just had started grad school, um, so I think I was like 23, 24, so I was really young, um, and I. I just, I felt really lost coming to grad school because, uh, you know, you get uplifted, you have this idea of what you're going to be or what you're going to do. And then I landed here in Chicago and was like, I have no idea who I am or what I'm going to be. <laughs> um, and, you know, these things just started to be at, happen at home. It was my first time away from home. And so I just started to go back and create photographs um, and had like a deep investment in wanting to be here and to be an artist um, and wasn't really sure what that looked like. Um, but knew I needed to be also back at home making photographs. And so I think when I started this project, first of all, I was young and just like really naive to what that was going to look like. And um, as time kind of progressed in the project, it it did turn into this project that became a lot more about time and going back to the same space. I think one of the really beautiful things about photography is that um, it does allow for multiples. And so you can photograph one space in like 20 different ways. And so for me, it became a really, really important part of the project was going back to that same space and really starting to see it evolve or devolve in some way um, and really became like a, a kind of frozen moment of that time. And so the other thing that starts to happen interestingly enough in my work too is um, my brothers look very similar and so does my sister in some ways. And so I think like, as family members, you know you look alike, but you don't think about it too much. Um, or you're always like trying to not look like your family or be your family. Um, but I think even like my brothers and sisters start to get confused in the images as well. I cannot tell them apart. Yeah. <laughs> and I live with some of those pictures in my apartment. <laughs> but there's so, and I like, that's one part that I really love that kind of accidentally starts to happen. Mm-hmm. And it's also like one thing that I really love about your photographs is that, you know, like a photograph of your mother, your sister and yourself, that you can see the resemblance and it's hard to tell who's who at some points. Um, and even to like figure out ages based on the makeuping or the costuming. Um, and so there's something really just interesting too about that like shared identity um, that starts to happen. Mm-hmm. Well, I was really interested in the text with the piece that Lisa chose because it revealed so much more than a photograph alone could. And I remember Lisa always talking about her work and making it a point to not really show her mother in the pictures because of this failure of photography. And 
although photography can capture so much, to capture someone's mental state is a very challenging and impossible thing to do. Yeah. Well, and I, I remember being in grad school and, you know, people would ask me, like, is this a documentary project or are you conceptual? And I always like would be so frustrated. And I, I'm always like, can photography live somewhere in the middle? Um, I think the, the things that I think we want to talk about are these larger issues um, that oftentimes don't visualize themselves. And that's why we don't talk about them. So it's like, how can we use this tool that is so much about like capturing the thing itself in front of it to talk about these things that aren't seen? Um, and so for me, I have always been kind of less interested in the backstory and more interested in like the single image and like how much of a story can you tell in one picture? And so for me, it's like referencing art history, referencing magazines. So like pulling from things that we all understand and that feel kind of universal, mm -hmm. um, rather than I think like traditionally in photography, we're always thinking about like what makes things other. And so for me, it's like, no, actually, like what are the things that hold us together? Um, and I think like, you know, photo does fail at so many things. Um, and there's also like this interesting thing that happens where we like trust photography and we don't, which I think also comes into play in your own work. Yeah, I think that's like really the most interesting thing about photography mm -hmm. is this relationship to tr like not truth, but like fact and fiction. There's mm -hmm. always, it's simultaneous. Yeah. And I think as a photographer, it makes a lot of sense to use those visual cues mm -hmm. from culture um, to talk about something broader. And I guess that's one thing with the talking about photography that I feel frustrated a lot with is like, I don't really want to talk about the reality of the situation necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, I want to talk about the pictures. Yeah. Or you're talking <laughs> about the reality through the the falseness of it, right? Yes. So yes. like thinking about like glamour magazines, it's like amazing to me that we, we, um, we like idolize Kim Kardashian and like these other people who are so clearly and like openly talking about how they've had all these things done to them. Mm -hmm. um, and that's like something that we believe to be true about like how they look and who they are. Um, and I think like your photographs are really fighting against that um, and like starting to like peel away those layers by actually applying more layers, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. I definitely think a lot about layers. <laughs> <laughs> I did want to ask you both about your working process, because obviously you're dependent on your models and mm -hmm. have to kind of probably schedule time and so forth. But how often are you working kind of in your heads? Are you, you know, how mm -hmm. obsessed are you with kind mm -hmm. of thinking about your work and are you planning it? you know, as you walk down the street um, before you get to, let's say, your family's home mm -hmm. or set up the time with your family to shoot them. Are you pre-planning photographs or is it more spontaneous than that? I'm just curious to get inside the mind of an artist um, and how much it kind of consumes your mental space. I'm consumed. <laughs> <laughs> I would say, unfortunately, I'm thinking about it all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and I wish there was space in my brain for other things, but sometimes <laughs> there's just not. Um, I plan a lot ahead. Uh, I plan everything ahead. And, um, you know, I, I mean, I know Lisa has done this too, like collecting a lot of poses from magazines or pictures from the internet um, to copy. I mean, I think we're both doing a lot of 
pulling from culture and, mm-hmm. you know, copying in our own way. Um, but then I'm also thinking about stylizing um, and lighting and props and, you know, I guess a, a lot goes into each picture that I make of there's lots of planning. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think I have more ideas than I ever have time for. Um, and I, because for the project that I have been working on, which has really consumed the last 12 years of my life, um, that is back in Erie, Pennsylvania. And so I live in Chicago. And so that's like an eight hour trip and I don't get to go off in enough. And so a lot of that is like here I'll think about things or see things on the street and catalog it, a lot of research. And then when I get there, like I will try those things and it tends to all fall apart. And so then there is that like kind of reacting to the situation um, because things are never ever as I plan or anticipate, which is what I think keeps me interested and keeps me going back um, because that does mean that there's still more to learn from that subject. Yeah, I think that's a good point. It's, I think it's good to go in with a plan, but it would be so boring if everything went according to plan. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why photography is so exciting. It's yeah. because there's so much room for being spontaneous and being surprised. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I tell my students all the time, it's not fun if it's not hard. It's true. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Focal Point. Focal Point is presented by the Museum of Contemporary Photography at Columbia College Chicago in partnership with WCRX. Special thanks to Professor Matt Cunningham and student production intern Wesley Reno. Music by Zavi. To see the images we discussed today, please visit mocp.org backslash focal point. You can also follow the Museum of Contemporary Photography on Facebook and Instagram at mocpchi, that's M-O-C-P-C-H-I, and on Twitter at MOCP underscore Chicago. If you enjoyed our show, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to Focal Point anywhere you get your podcasts.